Well, we have come this morning to a high point in the Scriptures, one of a handful of places in the Bible where God just sums up very quickly what He calls from His people. He does this maybe a half a dozen times in the Bible, and when He does, it tends to leave us in awe of how simple His calling of His people is, and yet how high and lofty it is, and how good He is to equip us to follow Him faithfully. We've come across one of these this morning. In fact, it's, it's so poetically put and so well-known that if you came into this sermon series on the book of Micah, familiar with just one or two parts of Micah, it was probably Micah 5.2, quoted around Christmas time, that Jesus will be born in Bethlehem, or perhaps what we will read today. Some of you could finish it if I started. He has told you, O man, what is good and what does the Lord require of you but to do justice, to love mercy, and to walk humbly with your God. I wonder if a third of the room even has that verse memorized this morning. Uh, It's well put. It's well used by the church. And yet, for how important it is and how well loved it is by the church, it is more difficult than normal to interpret what Micah means when he says these words. Uh, It really revolves around three key words, justice, kindness, and humility. And this word justice has been so colored by modern politics that we can't help but read our own view of justice into what it says and let the text tell us that our view of justice is right and affirm whatever it is we already believe. And then the next word, kindness, is one of the most difficult words in all of the Hebrew language to translate. And then that third word for walking humbly, that humility, Uh, It's a word used only one other time in the Old Testament. It's also very difficult to translate. So for a text that is so important for us to understand and get right, it's also going to take a lot of work, more technical work than we normally do together in a sermon to get just right. And yet it's so important. We as the people of God want to know what does God call from us? What does God require from us? So we're going to do the extra work this morning of diving into some technical things that I don't often take you through so that we can get a firm understanding together. What does the Lord require of me now that I am his? My prayer is that you will leave this morning with a firm understanding. Okay, I know what God calls for me for the rest of my life, and I know how I could sum it up. Let's look together at Micah 6, verses 6 through 8, where we see what the Lord does not want from his people and what he does want from his people. With what shall I come before the Lord? And bow myself before God most high. Shall I come before him with with burnt offerings, with calves a year old? Will the Lord be pleased with thousands of rams, with with ten thousands of rivers of oil? Shall I give my firstborn for my transgression, the fruit of my body for the sin of my soul? He has told you, O man, what is good. And what does the Lord require of you but to do justice and to love kindness and to walk humbly with your God? The words of the Lord. Through those words, the Spirit of God calls his people away from lifeless sacrifices and to a living faith. The people of Micah's day 
had become full of corruption in their great wealth, full of injustice. They had become merciless before one another, and they had become full of pride. And yet, in their pride, they thought that the Lord favored them very much. They would say, is not the Lord in the midst of us? No disaster shall come upon us. And so Micah rose up, a mighty prophet, declaring there is no one like God, calling Israel to turn back to their Lord, to keep the covenant faithfully, and actually successfully called King Hezekiah to repent and save Jerusalem in the process. Powerful words this prophet spoke. And these words here, he confronts them because though they were full of corruption and injustice, though they were full of pride, they thought that they were good before God because they were offering big gifts. They expected big gifts to pay for their sins. So they didn't have to really address what they were doing. And Micah rose up to say, no, the Lord is not like other gods. He does not work like this. There is no one like him. As Christians, we find the words a call to repentance, and repentance is a regular part of the Christian life. You come to Christ Jesus by turning from sin to look at his unfailing love and to trust him. And then on and on, he reveals to us the sin in our lives and the sin in our hearts, and we find ourselves constantly turning from sin to the living God. And as Christians this morning, we find in these words a call to turn from these very things if we are guilty from them and turn to the goodness of God rather than what looks more appealing, just buy our way out of a jam with a big gift. Uh, Before I get into what they mean, I do need to give you one really important caveat, because it's tempting to view these words as a quick summary of how I come into a relationship with God. If I'm not one of God's people, how do I become one of his people? Well, it'd be really easy to say, oh, he's told you what is good. Do justice, love mercy, walk humbly with your God, and you get to be one of his people. That's not what's going on here. No, these words were given to people who were already in a relationship with God and, in fact, had turned away and were displeasing him with their lives, though they were his people. And so they are calling him back to faith. He was calling them back to faithfulness. No, you enter a relationship with God, not by doing justice, not by loving mercy, not by walking humbly with your God, but by being saved by his grace in the first place. Just as these people were saved by him first, and then he told them, now that you're mine, here is what I want from you. So they were slaves in the nation of Egypt heavy under this yoke of slavery, forced to do whatever their masters told them to do, even though they hated and they went out of that life. There's no way out of that life. And the Lord, with a mighty hand and outstretched arm, pulled them out of Egypt and rescued them from slavery. Then he said, now that I've saved you, here's what I want from you. Now that I've saved you, here's how our relationship works. In the same way, if you want to become one of God's people, Well, it begins by being saved by his grace. In the same way that they were born slaves in Egypt, we were all born slaves. You were born a slave, not to Egypt, not to Egyptians, but a slave to sin. And that is why you can look back on your life and see things that you've done and say, why did I do that? I I hate that I did that. And if I'm honest with myself, I'm going to keep doing these things Aren't I? You may have heard this in the song that Sue sang. I'm going to read some of the words to you. She sang, My soul yearned to follow God, 
but I knew I'd never be so strong. Do you resonate with that? I want to do the right thing, but I keep doing the wrong thing. Why am I doing that? The reason is that you were born a slave to sin, and sin is your master. And when your heart wants something, you go and do it. And when your body wants something it shouldn't want, you go and do it. And what the Lord is willing to do, he has taken his people just like he rescued Israel, the mighty hand and outstretched. He's ready to save you from that sin, from its power over you. And the penalty for your sin, rescuing you from both in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ, which itself pays for the sins of the people who trust him and gives power to his people to overcome sin in our lives somewhat even now and fully when he comes back. So if you want to be one of his people, you need to be rescued from sin in that way. Your part in that is to look to him in faith. And say, Jesus, I believe you are who you say you are in this book. I believe you're God made man. I believe you were born of the Virgin Mary. I believe you died for my sins, and I call upon you to save me. Same way those Israelites cried out to God for salvation. Look to him to save you. If you're willing to do that, and I call you even to do this now if you never have before, if you're willing to do that, you're one of his people. And so the next question is, okay, now that I'm yours, now that you have saved me, what do you want from me? right? I'll do anything for you. You save me. What do you want from me? And that is what we get in Micah 6, 6 through 8. First, what he does not want. That's what we see in verse 6 and 7. What does the Lord not want from his people? He does not want faithless sacrifices from his people. We see this in the way that verses 6 and 7 unfold. They unfold kind of like a temple liturgy in ancient Israel. People in this day would go before the temple and they would read something like Psalm 15 or Psalm 24 that you may be familiar with. They'd go to the entrance of the temple and they would ask essentially, who's allowed to come in and be with God? Right? I'm one of his people, but what kind of person gets to come in? So they would ask, oh Lord, who can sojourn in your holy tent? Or who can ascend to the house of the Lord? And then the priest would answer back to them, speaking for God. He would say things like, he who has clean hands and a pure heart, he who does not lift up his soul to what is false. Essentially, someone who is living a living faith with God. This is a follower of God that pleases him and is allowed to come into the temple. So they would ask, what kind of person can come in? And the priest would essentially answer, a faithful person who is living out their faith in God. Well, Micah mimics that with these verses as a worshiper comes before God and asks not the right question, who gets to come, what kind of person gets to come, but the wrong question. Look at verse 6. It's not what kind of person gets to come, it's with what shall I come, right? What do I have to bring with me to get into the temple? So here are people who are not willing to be the kind of people God is calling them to be. Instead, their question is, okay, how big of a gift can I bring to make this God happy as I persist in unrepentant sin? So they ask the wrong question, and there's not an answer, right? What do I have to bring with me, God? No answer. And so the asker begins to suggest, well, what about like a 
Maybe, maybe a burnt offering, like a calf, maybe a couple of calves, a year old. That's, that's very expensive. Surely that would be enough that I can come into your presence and be with you. Is that enough? There's no answer. Well, okay, what about, what about a, a thousand rams? Who can afford a thousand rams? But if I can somehow get myself a thousand rams and bring them before God, is that enough? And they wait for an answer. No answer. Okay, okay, okay. I will up the stakes even more. What, what about 10,000 rivers of oil? There's not even that much oil in the whole world, but if I can go find it and offer it to you, is that enough for me to come into your presence while I persist in sin that I don't want to talk to you about? Is that enough? And they wait and no answer. This blows up like a balloon, bigger and bigger and bigger until it pops with one last desperate offer. Okay, what if I offer the one thing nobody wants to offer? What if I offer my firstborn child? What if I offer the fruit of my body for the sins of my soul? Lord, is that enough to buy my way into your presence? And still, no answer. The Lord uses that dramatic telling to show us that God isn't pleased with any sacrifice while we refuse to turn from sin, and no amount of gift will make up for that. So that means as as people of God, if we are aware of sin in our lives, And it's not like, okay, I know I'm doing this. I am fighting it. I am talking with the Lord about it. Sometimes I win the battle and sometimes I lose the battle. It's not like that. Instead, it's, I'd rather not think about the fact that I'm doing that, right? I'd rather just live in denial, the fact that I'm doing that. Or, well, I know I'm doing that and I know it's wrong, but I don't want to change. And so I'm not going to talk to God about it and I'm not going to change. Or maybe it's, I know I will keep falling into this sin as long as I keep it in the dark and don't seek help from others and bring it into the light and tell people I trust about what I'm doing so I can get their accountability and their help. I'm not willing to do that to turn from this sin. We're talking about a a willful, uh, I will not turn from this sin. As long as we are doing this before God, you can't sing loud enough to make up for that. You can't write a big enough check to make up for a refusal to turn from sin. You can't sit on enough committees and teach enough children's class or preach passionately enough to make up for a refusal to turn from sin. Now, this is not what the Lord calls from us. This is what Saul would not learn in 1 Samuel chapter 15. He, uh, he made the mistake of refusing the law of God, breaking the law of God to offer a sacrifice to God. Now that probably sounds pretty foolish to us, but that's what he did. He was eager to offer a sacrifice, and so he broke the law of God to do it. And the prophet Samuel showed up to him, 
and said, Has the Lord as great a delight in burnt offerings and sacrifices as in obeying the voice of the Lord? Behold, to obey is better than sacrifice. To listen is better than the fat of rams. Rebellion is as the sin of divination, and presumption is as iniquity and idolatry. So when we're refusing to walk in God's ways, it taints the offering if we aren't willing to turn from the sin. Even as the people of God, this is true. Hosea would rise up and say a very similar thing as Micah to the people. Uh, I desire mercy, not sacrifice. Purity of heart rather than burnt offerings. The idea is that God cares about the offerings we give him here. He cares about the songs we give him, the gifts we give him. He cares about all of the offerings, but he cares about the way we live even more. He wants us to turn from sin even more. This is what Jesus rebuked the Pharisees for in Matthew 23. He said, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees and hypocrites. You you tithe on the mint and the dill and the cumin, but you neglect the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, faithfulness. Those you should have done without neglecting the others. He, He cares about you tithing on the spices in your spice cabinet, but... He wants even more for you to live in righteousness and when you see yourself in sin, turning from sin and coming back to him. What's going on here with Saul and with the people of Micah and Hosea's day, with the Pharisees, even what goes on in our hearts is that we would rather do almost anything than admit our sin and turn from it. There's, there's the old would-you-rather game. You ever play that with your friends? Would you rather your hair catch on fire or your shoes catch on fire? You ever play that? And then you have to pick one of the bad things, right? The ultimate would-you-rather that no one wants to do is would you rather admit that you were wrong before God and turn from your sin? That's what all of our hearts have defense mechanisms against. And so, so we'll blame other people for our sin instead of turning back to God, right? Or or we'll build an entire ideology that affirms our sin so we can call it good instead of bad. Because the very last thing any of us want to do is go before God and say, I did this, it was wrong, I turn from it. One of those defense mechanisms is offering a big gift so that you don't have to deal with the sin. And that's what these people were doing. And that's the temptation upon us as well. Uh, The wealthy person would rather write a big check than have to deal with the sin and turn from it. Uh, The Sunday school teacher or the preacher would rather teach or preach with just a little more passion and energy than deal with our sin and turn from it. Uh, Because in our hearts, we would rather do anything then turn from our sin. When we do that, when we offer him a a big gift, instead of turning from sin like we should, uh, you could think of it as as baking a cake. uh, To season your offerings with repentance from sin and faithful living before God, it's like baking a cake with, with the best of sugar in it. It doesn't matter if it's a small cake or a big cake, A good cake with good sugar in it, that's going to be good, right? It's going to taste good to the Lord. When we season our offerings with hardness of heart, 
denial of our sin, refusal to turn from our sins. It's like baking a cake with salt instead of sugar. Doesn't matter how big the cake is. Tastes terrible, right? Cake with salt. No, no thanks. I don't care if it's big. I don't care if it's little. And the Lord says, well, when you come to me with gifts, but you're refusing to turn from sin and look upon my grace, he says, the cake tastes like it was baked with salt. And so the call then is to put down the gifts for a moment and instead turn from sin to him. That's sin that we're, we're trying to deny that we're regularly falling into. Or we don't want to admit, have we just rather pretend didn't happen. Or that sin that keeps happening and we know about it. And I'm talking to God, but I'm not willing to bring it into the light so I can have help turning from it. Or that sin that I know is wrong and I know I keep doing, but I just like it and I'm just not going to turn from it. Or whatever it is, the Lord, the call is to turn from that and look upon his goodness and grace to seek mercy and forgiveness before him. Then you can offer him 25 cents in the offering plate, and it's beautiful to him. Right? This is why the Pharisee that came before God and said, God, I thank you. I'm not like other men. I'm so much better than everybody else, went home not justified. And the tax collector who came before him and wept and said, have mercy on me, God, a sinner, went home justified, right? Because he doesn't need our gifts. He wants you to turn from sin. Let me give you one more illustration of this before we move on to the next. Let me, let me turn the tables. If, uh, let's imagine instead of a worshiper in God, we're talking about a, a father who has been faithless to his, to his son. Uh, some, some of us, this, maybe this is your story, but a, a father mistreats the mother early in the boy's life, winds up abandoning her and the son, and is just out of the picture for much of this son's life. Never comes around, never tries to reconcile, never says, I'm sorry for what I did to you and to your mom. Just isn't interested in making this right. And then he shows up at the boy's 16th birthday party. And everyone's like, what, what's he doing here? We haven't seen him in 15 years. And he's there. And he pulls out the keys to a car and says, here you go, son. Happy birthday. And then leaves. Young men in situations like that, young women in situations like that, often don't have the words for the anger in their hearts when they're treated like that. If they did, it might be something like, Dad, I, I, I didn't want your money. I, I want you I want you to come back and try to make this relationship right. I want you to be in my life again. I want to know you again. I don't want your stupid car, right? Now, they may not have words for that, but we wouldn't be surprised if that angry young man or that angry young woman took a baseball bat to the car because they didn't want the car, right? They wanted their dad back. Okay, let's turn the tables back. Now it's us before God. And, and if you have fallen into sin and you don't want to turn from it, friend, God doesn't want your gift. He wants you. He wants you to come back to him and say, I am ready to make this relationship right before you. I am ready to walk in your ways. I am ready to confess my sin to you. Then he is pleased with the gifts. But until we're willing to turn from our sin, He's not pleased with the gifts. 
So there's what he doesn't want. He doesn't want faithless sacrifices from his people. What does he want? What does he want us to turn to? Let's turn from that. What's he want us to turn to? That is what verse 8 tells us. Look at verse 8 together. As I said earlier, verse 8 is hard to interpret. I spent more time on it than normal trying to get it right in my study this week. Uh, But thankfully, the first two lines help a lot. The last two lines are hard to interpret. First two lines help very much. First two lines saying, he has told you, oh man, what is good. So, well, there's a a mercy right there. Whatever this is going to say, he's already said it right? He has already told you, oh man, what is good. So here we are, eh, two-thirds, three-quarters of the way through the Bible, somewhere back in the early part. He's already said whatever these words mean. And if I had to guess, my first guess would be the book of Deuteronomy, because the prophets reference Deuteronomy all the time. They're actually there to enforce the book of Deuteronomy and say, you guys aren't doing what you said you would do in Deuteronomy, and now the Lord's going to do what he said he was going to do in the book of Deuteronomy. The first place I would look is Deuteronomy, and when you look there, lo and behold, look at the second line, what does the Lord require of you? Those words are actually almost verbatim in the book of Deuteronomy. Uh, Deuteronomy chapter 10, actually. Let's turn back there together if you've if you got your Bibles open. Deuteronomy 10, verse 12. And I want you to see it because you want to see how similar these words are. And now, Israel, what does the Lord your God require of you? Same same words, but to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to keep the commandments and statutes of the Lord, which I am commanding you today for your good. So there's where he already told us what the Lord wants from us. So whatever Micah's got to say here, it's going to come down to, Love God, fear God, keep his commands, love your neighbor, right? And this is very similar to how the sage in Ecclesiastes puts it, right? The whole duty of man is to fear God and keep his commands. Or Jesus, from another angle, says, love the Lord your God and love your neighbor as yourself. That sums up the law and the prophets. So what Mike is going to do here is he's going to sum up that core, love God, love your neighbor, fear God, keep his commands, walk in all of the Lord's ways, kind of sum up that basic following Jesus faithfully for a people who have turned into injustice, who have become merciless, and who are filled with pride. What would it look like them for them to love God and love their neighbor? What are they coming back to? Let's flip back to Micah now, and we'll start to ask just what it is. So what would it look like for those people to love God and love their neighbors, to fear God and to walk in his ways? Uh, First, to live in justice. To do justice, he would even say. That's a straightforward word biblically. Uh, Our political era has colored it so much. This verse has been quoted by everybody from the pride movement to the KKK, infusing their own definitions of justice and what is right into a verse like this. 
And as we go into an election season, I just want you to know when you hear someone in a political movement quote this verse, the question you need to ask is, how does this person define justice? Don't let them use this to pull you into some cause that isn't biblical. Are they calling me to biblical justice or not? Well, in the Bible, the word justice just means to treat other people fairly, especially in business and in leadership. So, you know, do good to others, treat the people you bump into on the streets fairly, the people you talk to on social media, be fair to them, especially when you're doing business deals, if you work together, if you're selling something in the marketplace, and especially if you lead other people, treat them fairly and do them right. You do that, you're walking with justice. Micah's hearers were doing the exact opposite, landowners ripping off tenants, rulers taking bribes from the landowners and just letting them get away with this oppression. So corruption was rife everywhere. And so Micah calls him, you want to love your neighbor, walk justly, do justice. Very practically, that means for us to treat our neighbors well when we bump into people. That means if you're selling your couch on Facebook Marketplace and it's got a tear on the left armrest, be upfront. Be clear about it. Take a picture. Put it in the listing and put in there, tear on left armrest, see picture. Like, don't rip people off when you're doing deals with them in business. You can get the better end of a deal, but don't rip anyone off. It means that if you're in a place where you've got a certain amount of power and authority, if you're a police officer, if you're working for the government with, as an official, if you're leading a home or leading a church to take special care to treat those in your care well and fairly, knowing that you are answerable to God for what you do with the position that he gives you. If you can do that and treat others fairly, you're walking justly, you're doing justice and this is one thing that he is calling them to turn back to. Second word is to, to love kindness. And I said earlier that that word is one of the most difficult words in all the Hebrew language to translate. Um, and the, I, rarely do I tell you what a Hebrew word is. I'll tell you this one. It's the word hesed. And it is used in two different ways. Uh, one, if you have ever, if you're a, an avid reader of the Psalms, and you probably saw a lot the same word in your translation. Maybe it's loving kindness in your translation or your steadfast love or your unfailing love. If any of those ring a bell and you're like, yeah, I see that word a lot in the Psalms. That is how they tend to translate this word. It refers to the deep, faithful love of God that reached out and called us back into relationship with him. And then as a God who made great promises to us, the God who keeps those promises. So if you're a believer in Jesus, like God loved you enough to reach out to you when you were a sinner and bring you back to him, that is unfailing, loving kindness. And then over and above that, he has sworn with a solemn vow that he will never leave you and never abandon you. And so you can count on his unfailing love. You can count on his loving kindness. That's hesed. That deep love of God that shows mercy to sinners and keeps all of his own because he's promised them. That's one way this word is used. And if that is what Mike is talking about, then it would be to love that unfailing love that God has for us, right? To cling to God like he clings to you. Faithfulness might be the word. To be faithful to that covenant and his love for you. The word is also used, excuse me, used, to refer to a 
profound kindness that two people can show to each other. Something does, somebody does something really merciful to somebody else. And it's like, oh, you've, you have shown deep hesed to me. You have shown a great loving kindness to me. When, uh, when Boaz, for instance, is very kind to Ruth, she looks to him and speaks of the great loving kindness you have shown to me. Right? It's the kind of mercy we can offer to people. Somebody needs help moving. You don't want to help them move, but you do anyway. It's like you just really did a kind thing for that. that that's, that's hesed, right? And if Micah's telling us to love that, that would be more like our translation here, to love kindness, to love showing kindness to other people. And so which one is it? Is it love God's steadfast love for us or love showing kindness to other people? Well, these people were flopping at both, and so Micah's calling them back to both. And in Matthew 23, when Jesus refers to this verse, he says the weightier matters of the law, justice, kindness, and faithfulness. So he refers to to both. And so we can say with pretty good confidence, Micah's talking about both here. He wants you to love showing mercy and kindness to others the way that God has shown mercy to you. And when things get rough and you are just depending on God's great mercy toward you, to love that mercy and cling to it faithfully. That's what he's calling us when he calls us to love the hesed of God. If your heart was moved by the call to repentance earlier, this is what God's calling you to. This is the joy he's calling you to. It's tempting when a preacher preaches on repentance to just feel bad, right? And uh, it's almost like entertaining, right? Like, ooh, that was a good one, Pastor. Man, you really, really made me feel bad with that one. And, and that's not what, what the Lord wants from you. We, we should be emotional about our sin, yes. But he is calling us to turn from sin to the unfailing love of God. And if he has worked repentance into your heart this morning, there should be a bursting joy that says, I rest on the unfailing love of God. He's been kind to me, and so I'm going to be kind to others as well. This is what, something what the Lord means when he calls us to love that steadfast love of God. And finally, he calls us to walk humbly with our God. This word for humble, also difficult to translate. I won't go into the techniques of it, but it essentially has the feel of walking very carefully and humbly before God. I'm not going to be presumptuous. I'm not going to assume I'm doing this right, but I'm going to make sure every little thing in this worship is just how he wants it, like a carefulness and also a quickness to repent. When uh, the prophets called these men to repent and then the kings did, it would say they humbled themselves before God. Different word in the original, but the same concept. So King Hezekiah would hear this, and he would humble himself before God because he'd sinned. Uh, and then Josiah would hear similar prophecies and hum- humble himself before God. King Amon, by contrast, would not humble himself before God. And this is a phrase used to talk about repentance. So it's a, it's a walk with God that sees that he is big and he is holy. And then you can see I'm small and I'm sinful because there you are before the holy, great God of gods. Carrying that sense of reverence and repentance in your heart. It's not self-loathing or self-deprecation, right? Nobody looks up at the stars at night and sees their beautiful vastness, feels small and says, with a moping voice, oh, I'm so useless. That's not how the stars make you feel. They make you feel small, 
but they make you feel happy to be small. Isn't that weird? Isn't that strange? And this is what the goodness of God, when we see it, makes us feel. Small and happy to be small. There's a happy humility, a happy sense even of our own sin and our need for repentance that just looks to him and says, oh, I want you. And there we find fullness of joy in the arms of Jesus Christ. So it's a little funny, but to sum up Micah's three words, it takes five English words. Whoever thought that would have happened, right? Justice, kindness, faithfulness, reverence, and repentance. Micah's calling us to walk like that because that shows a living faith. When God changes you, this is how we begin to live. And he looks down upon a life of someone who does justice to those they know and someone who loves kindness and loves the faithfulness of God and walks with reverence and walks with repentance. And he says, I know that person trusts me. I can tell. I, don't have to, I can look in their heart, but I don't have to look in their heart because I can see how they're living. And when we have a living faith like that, friends, you can come in this room and you can sing off key and you can be wearing the wrong clothes And the Lord says, I love the sound of that singing. And you can offer 45 cents in the offering plate because that's all you've got. And the Lord says, I love that repentant heart. These are the kinds of offerings that please God. The Lord doesn't want lifeless sacrifices. He wants living faith. So he calls you this morning to living faith.